When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're discussing in football. I'm Ian McGarvey and with me as always is our transfer guru, Duncan Castles. Today we've got news from you from all across the EPL and beyond. We're going to start off, however, with Arsenal Football Club, who are not exactly experiencing the best of times of late. Mikel Arteta is coming in for criticism regarding results. The club itself is being accused of not moving forward since the sacking of Unai Emery and indeed... Arteta's own credentials are being questioned with regards to the way the club have started this season. However, it's our information that sporting director and former Arsenal player and legend, it has to be said, Edu, is backing Arteta to the hilt uh, during meetings with club administrators and the heads at the club who make decisions. He has said that he believes firmly that Arteta is still the right man for the job. And indeed, Edu uh, has been re- looking at recruitment for January in the form of a right-sided centre-back and a creative midfielder. It's our information that the um, Hungarian international Dominic Shaboslai and, would you believe, former Spurs playmaker Christian Eriksen are two of those players being considered for the creative midfield role. I guess questions and eyebrows might be raised when you've got Meza Ozil uh, on uh, reportedly £350,000 per week sitting outside of the Premier League squad and you're looking to recruit a creative midfielder to break down other teams. But that is where Arteta has identified that they are falling short in terms of providing what is a potentially very potent attack force in Pierre-Emerick Gaubameyang, Lacazette. Uh, but also, of course, the fact that Aubameyang is failing to fire this season the way he did last season. Duncan, I'm guessing it doesn't come as a surprise that Edu is backing Arteta um, and also that the Arteta regime is one that they want to succeed. Edu has put a big investment in Arteta. He uh, championed that change last season from Unai Emery to Mikel Arteta. There was always going to be an element of risk involved in, in giving a man who has never managed a club of at any level before um, the the reins of one of the biggest clubs in world football and, and one that has been struggling for for some time now. Um, and you can understand why Edu will, will, will be saying it is far too early to judge Mikel Arteta and to be thinking about changing manager again. But the pressure is obvious when you when you have 10 games in the Premier League played, 13 points, uh, sitting in 14th place, only 10 goals scored 
during those um, games. Uh, and the worst start for an Arsenal side um, after 10 matches of a Premier League season since 1982. Um, also, another uh, nasty statistic for Arteta is that uh, they've lost three consecutive home Premier League games for the second time um, since uh, they did it last season. Uh, and that's something that never, ever happened under Arsene Wenger in his, his years in charge of Arsenal as a, as a Premier League club. Um, the timing is kind of symbolic and it's just over one year since Arsenal decided to dismiss Unai Emery. Arteta's coming up for his first year in the job in the 20th of December. Uh, last year was when he was appointed. His statistics overall, 55.56% win rate, but that's in all competitions. So you're including a lot of Europa League games in there and including the FA Cup games, which were his great success. They, they were his, his achievement in qualifying Arsenal for Europe by winning the FA Cup, beating some of the most significant teams in the Premier League on the way to doing that, bought him a lot of credit. Uh, and a lot of reviews that Arsenal were going in the right direction, very much in the right direction, their problems were solved, uh, and it would be a path back to the competing for the Premier League title, which they'd set out upon. Um, We've talked before in this podcast about how difficult it is when a when a new manager comes in and a, and a manager who doesn't have experience of dealing with a top club, of being the face, of being the man who is held ultimately responsible, who has to explain where things have gone wrong, has to deal with a misstructured squad. There's no doubt that Arsenal have a misstructured squad, that they have a lot of inherent problems and a lot of inherited problems. Um, I was talking to one senior figure in football this week and, and asking him what he felt was the biggest problem at Arsenal. And he said, the biggest problem is the makeup of the squad. They have, a, they have too big a concentration of players. Um, he said with a French background, um, who when you get too many in a group, um, you can have problems over salary, over attitude. He's seen it happen at other clubs and, and he feels it's a, it's a contributing factor to what's going on at Arsenal at the moment. Um, can Arteta and Edu get these signings they want in the January window? Well, he, he had quite a strong summer window uh, in terms of getting Thomas Partey in, who was their first choice in midfield, um, getting Gabriel uh, ahead of what should have been a deal to go to Napoli. A lot of people upset over the way in which Arsenal managed to swing that deal in their favour and certainly improved their defence um, in doing so. They brought Willian in where there was a, a lot of competition from other Premier League clubs on a, on a very high salary. Uh, and William Saliba has come to the club and, and effectively been ignored. You're doing it in a COVID environment where, as we know, everyone's finances are badly hit. Um, Arsenal have had to reduce the wages of their players, um, reduce wages of staff, then spent money in the transfer market. That was controversial at the time. I think it will be controversial if they go again uh, aggressively in January. Um, so I would, I would suggest that Edu's got quite a hard 
job here to persuade the Cronkies that um, that they are on the right path with Arteta and the answer to this season's problems is to support him with more investment in this window coming um, to try and turn things around during this season. Funny you say that, Duncan. I was speaking to a very good friend of mine who is a long-term Arsenal fan but also has connections at the club uh, through um, his lifetime. And he said to me, look, the problem's always the same. It's the Kronkers, not the manager, not the structure, but the Kronkers just simply don't get football and they don't make the right decisions uh, in order to make progress for the club. And to be fair, history bears that view out with regards to Arsenal's last 12 years uh, in terms of competing for major trophies. I'm talking about outside of the FA Cup. Um, I would say, Duncan, I was speaking to uh, as well uh, someone very close to Christian Eriksen regarding his future. And if you remember, we did report on the podcast many months ago that Eriksen was uh, basically out of favour with Antonio Conte uh, internationally and that he would definitely move, um, if possible, in the summer window. That did not turn out to be the case. But uh, interesting that Beppe Marotta uh, the sport director at Inter has since been on the record as saying that these things happen in football many times. A player comes, it doesn't work out for the player or the club, but the player leaves. Uh, a clear indication or a clear uh, for sale notice on top of Christian Eriksen's head uh, ahead of the January window. Now, speaking to this person who's close to Ericsson, I was told that he is slightly concerned about the possibility um, of obviously crossing the North London divide, uh, having been a Tottenham pl player and a very much a Tottenham favourite uh, for many years uh, and going to Arsenal. However, such as is his particular situation and circumstance that he wouldn't rule it out. Um, he still owns a house in North London. Uh, therefore, uh, going back there and going to training ground at Colney rather than to the, the Tottenham Hotspur training ground, uh, again, is a convenience for him and his wife. Um, but also that he said the thing about Christian is he felt that his age and his experience and his talent merited a new football experience. And that's how he explained his desire to leave Spurs last January. Um, is it really a step up to winning major trophies at his age to move to Arsenal? Because Arsenal have not really proven themselves to be necessarily contenders for a major trophy at this time either. So perhaps Christian Eriksen would prefer to choose a different club. Um, it's maybe the case that Real Madrid, who expressed an interest at the time, might still come back in for him. And obviously that would represent a step up. But still, um, going to Arsenal might present something of home comforts for him, Duncan. And in the case of you know what he might do, it might be the case that his choices are limited. Yeah, Ian, I, th I think that's right. Um, look, Ericsson pushed very hard to get that move out of Tottenham. Um, we've seen on the, the Amazon documentary, the discussions Tottenham had at the time, the efforts they made to retain him. 
his decision was to go elsewhere and as you say to go elsewhere and and have a different experience and win trophies um that hasn't happened for him at inter who were not his first choice of move um as you say conte's made it very clear he wants a change there and he's been backed by the club and the players being placed on the market certainly if your ambition is to play in a different league and to win trophies in the latter part of your career then arsenal doesn't seem the sensible place to go because they're they're certainly not going to win the premier league this year um you would have to say that they've placed themselves at a significant handicap to get into the champions league next year which is where a player like ericsson wants to be and expects to be at the tail end of his career um it's quite hard to see them becoming seriously competitive in european football okay they've already proven under arteta they can win a big domestic trophy like the fa cup but it's hard to see them competing for the champions league and the premier league in the look definitely not this season and next season looks problematic too you would if you're ericsson you'd be looking at what's happening at the moment and trying to assess how much faith the Cronkies have in Arteta and whether he's the long-term plan for the club um, before even considering that offer. Again, as you said, all along he wanted to go to Real Madrid. There was an interest there, but he was never first choice for them. What's in his advantage is that Inter are under some financial pressure. You have both the, the coach and the director of football saying we're ready to let the player go. Therefore, there should be some kind of accommodation on the transfer fee. But yeah, not the most enticing of moves for someone like Ericsson from the from the, the point of view of, of leaving Tottenham in the way he did and then moving to Arsenal after failing at another club you you'd have to be a strong-willed character to take that on and and Ericsson certainly comes across that way as a as a very single-minded um considered individual but um he'd be he'd be setting aside a lot of his stated ambitions if he ended up moving back to Arsenal in this window or he, or the next window it would also be ironic Duncan if um Tottenham sustained their current position at the top of the Premier League and uh, Ericsson moved to Arsenal, having left Tottenham, saying, I want to win trophies. Um, but yeah, yeah. as you reported um, just a couple of weeks ago, Ericsson was offered back to Tottenham and uh, the response from Tottenham Hotspur was, no, we have moved on from that. Um, we play a different kind of football now. Uh, you've increased your wages going to enter. You didn't want uh, a new contract with us. Um at the, this time last year so no thank you very much just to ca cap the conversation on ericsson um duncan it does seem a shame because he was a very very good player in the premier league um in terms of both goals and assists and entertainment value as well it seems like um you know what's gone wrong for him personally is it, there's a bigger kind of picture as well in what's gone wrong because he was very suited to Premier League football in terms of the way uh, his vision and mental acuity in terms of moving the ball uh, quickly and accurately uh, was the case. So to see him leave uh, to, to then fail in Serie A uh, and then not to have uh, a potential way back uh, into Premier League football 
uh, let's, as you said, um, Arsenal don't look like they won't be competing for the Premier League this season and next season looks difficult. He would be 30 by that time. And, you know, he is going into that point of his career where at his peak, he should really be um, with his talent uh, competing for the trophies that he so uh, wanted to do when he left to go to, to Italy. I think where the mistake was made was choosing Inter under Antonio Conte. We know how Conte is as a manager. He's very specific in the way he wants his teams to play. He teaches them patterns of attack which are drilled on the training ground and has been very successful with it. You know, he, he won at Chelsea, he won at Juventus. He hasn't achieved his own ambitions, which is to win the, the Champions League. Um, but I think looking at that in the first place, you could see it wouldn't necessarily be a good fit. Ericsson is more, well, he's a disciplined player and he can play to patterns. Part of his skill is about that creativity, doing the unexpected, picking something out that, um, that, that, that goes against the system often, but works for the team. So it never seemed an ideal fit in the first place. Uh, and I think both parties are now paying the consequences of that move. And again, it's something to do with Antonio Conte. He always wants new players. If a player who is talented is offered to him, he never says no. Um, but you can end up in this kind of situation where it hasn't been thought through fully by both parties. Tottenham, in their case, were pushing for the move once Ericsson said, no, I'm not going to sign a new contract. It, it was a compromise deal, I think, which has um, penalised uh, both Inter and Christian Eriksson. Indeed it has. And uh, now we're officially in the season. It is to be jolly. Jurgen Klopp has gone from being a smiley elf to the Grinch, Duncan, uh, last weekend uh, at the game which he, his club and his team drew with Brighton Hove Albion at the Amex Stadium uh, due to a late VAR penalty award uh, which allowed Brighton to equalise. Herr Klopp definitely threw his toys out the pram even though they weren't even under the tree yet. And uh, <laughs> he uh, effectively had a, a real go at a BT Sports presenter, uh, Des Kelly, in his post-match interview, uh, deeming him to be responsible for James Milner's injury. Get well, James, by the way, uh, soon. And uh, also saying that it was the broadcaster's fault for the fact that uh, they had to play on Wednesday night in Champions League and 12.30 kickoff on a Saturday. Now, lots of analysis has been done because Klopp caused a lot of not just waves, but also headlines with regards to the way he conducted himself. And the analysis uh, concluded that in actual fact, uh, Liverpool have not suffered uh, in terms of results or points won from games played at those two different kickoff times in Champions League and Premier League. And also that this season itself, in terms of fixture congestion, hasn't been any worse or better than any other season. Um, this seems to be a recurring theme uh, with the Liverpool manager, Duncan. Uh, when things don't go his way, he turns into something of, uh, uh, you know, a different personality uh, when it comes to 
uh, his way of looking at the game and circumstances. It's okay when he's winning, but when he's not, then it seems to be someone else's fault. Certainly characteristic of Klopp when when things go wrong, we do hear these um, excuses or this anger from him. We often see him turning things back on the interviewer, the journalist, um, the broadcaster who is asking him questions as he did to Des Kelly after the, the Brighton game. It's a, it is a standard tactic of his. He becomes confrontational in these situations. I have a, a degree of sympathy with him over this interview. Um, he was asked about the VAR decisions that went against him, as he would be, given um, that Mo Salah had a goal ruled out for one of those VAR offside decisions, which we know cannot be accurately made with the technology um, that is available. Then um, Sadio Mane who was clearly offside, uh, had another one ruled out. And then the penalty was awarded against Andy Robertson because of VAR, uh, which was a correct penalty in which Stuart Atwell really should have seen first time around. But um, he was placed in a situation where, as he put it, he, he was asked to make the headline. And, and he said, I think the decisions were right. He tried to avoid giving the, that headline and then was pushed that, Jordan Henderson had suggested that the VAR decisions was wrong and, and got quite upset saying, well, look, I've, uh, I've answered your question. Now you want me to comment on what my players are saying about the issue. So I, I think that was part of the antagonism there. Um, I think he's also correct to say that the 12.30 kickoff was agreed, as he puts it, in different times. Um, you know, the, the Kelly's argument was that this was something that Premier League clubs wanted to make money. Therefore, don't blame the broadcaster for, uh, for, for choosing your team to play in the match, which, again, is correct and justifiable. But Klopp's argument that these are different times, that they are playing a more compressed schedule, is clearly correct because um, we're playing Champions League in midweek after midweek after midweek, apart from these international breaks, which have also been extended and, and been made more difficult for the players. And Klopp's players in the main are taking part in these international breaks. Um, and we are doing this in a season where they haven't had proper pre-season preparation. Following the messed up season we had last year, It it is... A more demanding situation it is more physically difficult for the players and you can understand Klopp being upset given the context in which he's already lost several very important players from his team um, to injury and to long-term injuries that he's faced with the, these difficulties of trying to play Champions League Wednesday and uh, and Premier League at 12.30 with a you know that extremely limited uh, preparation period and and an away game as well at Brighton, and you know he actually did everything or pretty much everything possible to make things easier for himself for this Brighton game. The team he he put out against at Atlanta in the in the Champions League was very weak. Um, the, the, there was a calculation there that they already had nine points and and they could possibly get through with a with a draw. Um, therefore, save your resources for the Premier League match. So I have sympathy with a lot of his 
what he said, but he also said some things which were inaccurate. So he, he said that his team will have to play three times in the 1230 slot uh, before the 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 year is over so including the december games and uh, and nobody else will have to do that that's not true um it's simply factually incorrect everton will have to play four of them now everton's a different situation because they don't play european games so it's not as difficult for them manchester united who are in the champions league will also play three of them on top of that if you look at the the games liverpool have had one only one of those 1230s this weekend's one was after a champions league match the other um was after an international break and they will have one more after a premier league uh, midweek game he's right um in the sense that some of his competitors do have not been asked to do as much so manchester city have had just the one 1230 kickoff but this happens uh this this differential um distribution of fixtures happens every season there isn't a consistency in the in the premier league's uh fixture list it is organized around tv unlike most european leagues where the teams play each other in a certain order in the first half of the season and then play the same order in the second half of the season the premier league doesn't do that um most premier league top managers will will complain about scheduling and the fact that they aren't um, treated with consideration of the players in mind. This is not a new problem. Um, and to attack Chris Wilder in that interview uh, and accuse him of being selfish does come across as, as very petty, um, particularly in his argument that Wilder hasn't actually benefited from the, the the vote that Sheffield United and other clubs have made to retain three substitutes rather than five substitutes because they've only taken one point so far. Also, his argument that it's not about tactics, it's just to save the players. I don't think that's true. Um, I think if you give a coach of Klopp's uh, credentials and abilities and the squad he has, albeit a squad that is damaged by injuries, he will use those five substitutes for tactical purposes at certain times when it suits him. We talked about the five substitutes thing before. We pointed out that this claim he makes that he wants five substitutes just to save the players is not backed up by his behaviour as a manager. The cardinal example here is in the Manchester City game where uh, between the two of them, Guardiola and Klopp, used just three substitutes of the six they were allowed. So they use it when it benefits them and when it suits them. They're not using it um, as a consistent policy to save players, even when they only have three substitutes. And you know, what it comes down to is, I think, Klopp doesn't take bad results well, which may be one of the reasons why he's a successful manager, um, but he does come across as quite petulant and, and petty in some of these interviews. Away from the interview, Duncan, uh, do you think we're seeing signs of a second season syndrome with Liverpool? And by that, I mean, obviously, they've won the league title and it was such a huge achievement for Liverpool after 30 years to get that monkey off their back 
and uh, obviously having won the Champions League the season before, they're having a fairly uh, interesting, let's just say, and and different experience uh, this season, as, as as every club is because of the circumstances. But Liverpool, uh, come Christmas time, New Year last year, uh, running away with the title. And as we trademarked, it was Liverpool's title to lose. And now it's Liverpool's title which must be defended and won because they're not top dogs anymore. But obviously the injuries and results are not as consistent. Well, not the injuries, obviously. The results are not as consistent as they were last season. Um, They've still got this incredible home record of 64 games undefeated. Uh, But they do seem to be slightly more shaky. And that second season syndrome in terms of defending the Premier League, and very few clubs have done that. I I believe only uh, Manchester United, Manchester City and Chelsea uh, have defended in the Premier League era. Um, The pressure is weighing heavily upon Jurgen Klopp. And when things don't go his way, he does tend to react in this manner. I I don't I don't I don't think that is a fair criticism of Liverpool. They are equal top of the Premier League at present. They're only behind Tottenham and goal difference. Um, they've done that with a huge disadvantage in terms of uh, long-term injuries, and most of them coming in one area of the field in defence. Um, they've lost players who are fundamental to the the tactical system they've used um, Virgil van Dijk in particular to win the title last season last season was an anomaly in the speed with which they won the title they were not as good as the points total they got they got a lot of breaks in key matches they got a lot of um, refereeing decisions go in their favour um, the the, the degree of victory they had last season was artificially large. So we were always going to see them, in my view, come back to the pack this year. And um, with those injuries, I think they've actually done very well to to stay at the top of the division um, and also to win their first three Champions League games. They lost playing very young guys at centre-back or one of the centre-back positions who made very basic errors um, which were exploited by their opponents. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure it's the pressure. Um, I, I think this was always going to be difficult for them. It's become harder than um, you could have reasonably expected. Klopp's been placed in a in a difficult position in that the um, FSG did not back him completely in the summer transfer window, so he was short of bodies, and in that area of the field, he lost bodies. Um, just one little sort of interesting aside on on the muscular injuries that are caused by these um, quick turnarounds, and and there's good statistics to show that if you um, the, the teams who are playing in the 12-30 slots since they've been brought in have more suffer more muscular injuries um, on average than teams do across the course of a, a Premier League season and quite significantly. So um, Liverpool are a club that, that use um, caffeine supplements as part of their, their high performance um, 
conditioning for matches. Now, caffeine supplements can, it's said, help with muscle recovery. They certainly help with performance. They're not by any means the only club that use them, but um, they obviously come with a a cost of disrupting a a player's sleep. Um, And one of the arguments that Klopp has been making about the 12.30 starts is that by not being able to play in the afternoon, um, the boys, as he said, as he puts it, can sleep longer um, when they have those later kickoffs. Even if they have to play on a Wednesday night, they get more time to sleep. Um, and he says sleep is a big part in the recovery. So, so maybe Klopp here is a bit more sensitive to this because one of the many methods Liverpool have used to gain success in the Premier League and Champions League is a handicap for them. Um, when it comes to this rapid turnaround of a of a Wednesday night Champions League game and a lunchtime kickoff in the Premier League, well, I'm sure we've all been victims of lack of sleep after that 11:30 p.m. espresso after a nice long <laughs> dinner, Duncan, uh, just to get the digestive uh, enzymes flowing, uh, as the Italians do. Uh, Ciao, Aurelio Capaldi, our old friend, who knows all about that. This is, of course, our first podcast of the week. But normally, you'll have been used to the fact we've done a Your Questions Answered session. But we've had so much news, we've had to cut this down in terms of this pod to one question. But it's a very good one. One from Jeremy Balkin, one of our international listeners, who has um, asked us, is the Manchester United cultural reboot complete now? Because Luke Shaw is third choice left back. Paul Pogba is sixth choice midfielder. And Martial is fourth choice striker. Supplementary question Does Josie officially deserve an apology? Let's go one at a time here, Duncan. Is the cultural reboot complete? <laughs> I'm not sure I would describe it as a cultural reboot being complete um, because they've kind of strayed away from the, the cultural reboot in their, in their transfer activity this summer and on. The evidence of the weekend game, one of the, the, the elements in which they strayed away in signing Adinson Cavani um, late in his career on very high wages is going to be, was very successful for them in saving that match and, and, uh, and producing an impressive turnaround and could be very productive for them in the rest of the season. Um, it's the first genuine number nine Manchester United have had for quite a while. And I think. If you examine the the other alternatives Solskjaer has an attack and the players who were described as being central to that uh, post-COVID uh, return um, of you know four or five games of very good form from Manchester United, Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial, none of them are particularly good at scoring balls, um, scoring goals with their head suddenly Manchester United have a striker who is very good at scoring goals with his head and that adds a very important dimension to the attack. Cavani can score normal uh, on the deck goals too, but suddenly teams have to be more careful and not just defend against those um, quick breaks that uh, had been central to Solskjaer's um, success he managed to achieve, which wasn't a 
that great uh, success in, in relative terms for Manchester United. I think I think Jeremy's a little bit off in saying that Luke Shaw is third choice left back, um, but he is clearly uh, down to second choice, and the, and the, the the direction of travel is that Alex Delish will have that role, and Shaw will probably be reduced to backup and um, the left sided centre back uh, when. Uh, Solskjaer starts with a back three. Pogba six-choice midfielder. Um, again, not quite, but he makes a, a valid point. And Martial, fourth-choice striker. I'm not sure he's there yet, but that success from Cavani and given that Marcus Rashford is one of the players Solskjaer uses more than many others, I think puts pressure on Martial's starting place in the team. And Mason Greenwood has been had his games reduced um, for you know, personal reasons um, this season. So with Pogba, it is interesting to examine because he's, if you go on Premier League um, minutes played this season, you can rank Manchester United's central midfielders as follows. Bruno Fernandes first, for obvious reasons. Fred second, which may come as a surprise. Scott McTominay, um, third with five Premier League starts. Then Pogba comes in with four Premier League starts and he's only played 46% of minutes. Nemanja Matic has the same number of starts, four, and just behind Pogba in minutes. And then Donny van de Beek, one start and just 22% of minutes. What's important to note there is the quality of central midfield options that Solskjaer now has and, and how significantly that midfield has been upgraded to the point where they can afford to use Pogba essentially as an impact substitute. Uh, they can afford to have him moaning about his uh, status at the club again, going on international duty and talking about the French national team being a breath of fresh air and, uh, and still get results like that Southampton game. They now, with Cavani, have a lot of options um, in attack on top of the, the, the three strikers that did so well for them last season. They are lacking in the right wing position that was the, the priority for summer recruitment. They do have problems at centre-back, but those are self-inflicted problems because Maguire was the, the player that Solskjaer wanted and asked for to be brought in for that position. But the quality of squad he has to work with is uh, is significantly stronger than it was before. And, you know, Jeremy asked that question, does Jose Mourinho deserve an apology? Well, you know, Mourinho wanted to shift Pogba out uh, and Pogba is gone that way. Um, and he's been moved by the manager into a position where he has got less playing time than Fred and Scott McTominay. Um, and with Donny van de Beek, you would expect moving up that uh, that list of, of playing time for Manchester United. Um, and Luke Shaw would have been a player that that Mourinho would have allowed to go and upgrade. Uh, and uh, Alex Tellis is demonstrating that uh, that would have been a sensible thing to do. Also a lot of strength at goalkeeper. Um, interesting in the, the game that De Gea injures himself and, and Manchester United are able to take an England international off the bench as, as backup. So perhaps, yes, um, some of those factors that were important in Mourinho losing his job, um, the requests he made 
to United to improve the squad, the areas he has to improve in, centre-back obviously being one of those. They have been upgraded. Um, the Solskjaer has a stronger squad to work with. Um, what we don't have as yet are consistent performances and results. They're ninth with 16 points from nine games. I think you can very easily argue that they're at least four points better off than they deserve to be, given uh, that, that extremely fortunate win they had at Brighton with the aid of a penalty awarded after the final whistle. And what happened in the West Brom game um, with VAR uh, chalking off a West Brom penalty and the referee missing a foul in the build-up to Manchester United's goal. They haven't really had very many convincing performances this season. But um, is cultural reboot over? Is is Jose, does Jose Mourinho deserve an apology for his his transfer requests? Um, I think certainly the latter is correct. Well, I'd say, Duncan, that if I were Jose, I wouldn't be holding my breath and waiting <laughs> for that apology. And I would also say to you, and this is the question every Manchester United fan who is also a fan of the Transfer Window podcast wants me to ask, were you impressed by their comeback against Southampton? I was impressed. Um, they, look, 2-0 down against a team like Southampton, um, they are the team in the, in the Premier League who have dropped more points from winning positions than any others. And you can see why that happens because of the way they play, uh, that high-pressing system. And they, they generally don't switch away from it even when they, they go ahead. So they leave other teams the opportunity to, to score against them. Um, but you still have to do it. Um, we saw the, the weakness of the, the, the semi-zonal marking system that, um, that Solskjaer employs that put um, his team behind in the game. Um, and I think, as I said earlier, we've seen the difference Cavani can make to that team. Um, adding a different dimension to their attack. Um, I think if Ralph Hasenhutl is um, accurate in his post-match commentary, um, you also see from that comeback an indication of where the players see themselves as a club because Hasenhutl described them as celebrating in there, the dressing room, like they won the Premier League. So... It clearly, if Hassan Hoodle's testimony is accurate, um, came as a big relief to the Manchester United players and was considered a great success by the Manchester United players, um, which kind of puts in perspective where they are at present, where they've been um, recently. It does indeed. And no doubt we will be speaking more on Manchester United later in this week on the podcast. Now we're going to turn our attentions to a story we've been covering, Duncan, in detail over the past few weeks, and that is the takeover of Derby County. It's our information that the takeover by Sheikh Khalid bin Zayed al Nahan is very close to being completed and that both Derby and uh, the Sheikh expect an official announcement to be made this week, possibly within the next 48 hours. However, what will this mean for Derby County with regards to having um, 
someone who is an investor and has uh, a very, very uh, large fortune to invest. Well, it is also been told to the transfer window that Derby County fans should not expect a investment in the short term with the likes of Chelsea and Roman Abramovich, also with uh, Manchester City and Abu Dhabi, or indeed with PSG and Qatar, that this is going to be a process of slow growth. Uh, the Sheikh himself and his advisors, including the man who is chief executive of the Devontio Group, who have invested, uh, Midyat Kamil Kidwai, intend to be largely under the radar um, for the initial part of their ownership of the championship club. They are intending to build what's been described to us as a solid foundation for moving forward and making progress. And that their first aim is simply to, first of all, find a first team coach, because clearly they're currently under interim manager Wayne Rooney, um, but one who can uh, lead them out of the relegation places. They're currently bottom of the championship, solidify their place there. Then investment will come, but not in a huge way in the summer of next year, uh, where they will then have an attempt to gain promotion to the Premier League, and then they will build on from there. And until they gain promotion to the Premier League, that's possibly when the kind of spending uh, which will be uh, required to keep them there and also to return Derby County to the kind of status they enjoyed uh, 20 years ago in terms of their position in English football will then be made. Um, Duncan, where do you see the um, priorities in terms of Derby County? Obviously, the manager's job has got to be the first one. Um, uh, we're also told that they are uh, looking for players in January, but again, it will not be a huge spend, but strikers are high on the agenda. But the importance of putting the right coach in place clearly is uh, something which is going to be fundamental to this particular project. I think with any takeover like this, the 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 key appointments are the recruitment staff, head of recruitment, uh, whether that be a director of football, but whoever is in charge of spending uh, the money that's provided to improve the squad and dealing with the to the players who need to be moved out of um, the current squad and coach. That's where you, those two positions are the two where you can get the most um, value out of your spend. Um, and therefore, I think they have a, a difficult situation on their hands with um, Wayne Rooney being the interim manager. Um, as we discussed on, on recent podcast question marks over just how capable he's going to be, certainly um, very inexperienced in that role. We talked at the start of this podcast about Mikel Arteta's difficulties um, taking on club management for the first time. And, and there we're talking about someone who's coached for several years and coached at the highest level and learned um, as a as a as a co-coach from one of the best managers in the game. Rooney, as you said, only having a C license at present for all his uh, his great experience, um, 
it's you know he, he, he's in a difficult position a very challenging position to turn around at once and it is certainly going to be a gamble if Sheikh Khalid and co decide uh, to stick with Rooney if they decide to change that is going to be a controversial move in itself because he is a, a extremely high profile individual with a great deal of popularity in the English game so if they do decide to change it will have to be done in a a subtle and considered uh, and careful way. Um, I also think this is an interesting test of, of Sheikh Khalid himself uh, and uh, where the money has come from for this takeover and how much he is prepared to invest in a football club um, and who he trusts to advise him and uh, and and implement those decisions. This is someone who had himself linked um, with the takeover of Newcastle United. He had himself linked with the takeover of Liverpool at one point. Um, you're looking at major spends to, to take on either of those clubs. He's been thought of initially as being a senior Abu Dhabi royal. He is not that. He's a distant cousin of the, um, the Abu Dhabi royal family who own Manchester City. Um, he isn't even based in Abu Dhabi anymore. He's in Dubai. Um, I think quite a few people in football will be watching this takeover carefully to, to see how he operates um, and whether the stated plan of getting Derby County back into the Premier League um, is achievable uh, and whether he has a coherent strategy to get them there. Well, there certainly seems to be a plan. Um, speaking to people close to the takeover, Duncan, um, as explained at the beginning of this conversation, uh, what will be interesting is, as you say, if uh, they have the cojones, as we say, uh, to displace Wayne Rooney as head coach, as he is currently interim head coach. Uh, but in saying that, um, I am informed that um, there will be uh, an interview process and that candidates will be interviewed. Uh, I noticed John Terry has been mentioned in reports uh, with regards to the job as head coach, although he's not someone whose name I have heard in conversations with regards to taking over at Pride Park. So yes, it will certainly be um, an interesting few days and weeks for Derby County regarding what happens uh, in the future. Currently, as I said, bottom of the championship and in desperate need of wins, points and climbing up the table in order to secure their championship status, never mind the point where they get to challenge for promotion. And remember, this is a club who were just outside the playoff places last season and also uh, lost the uh, playoff final the year before. Now, it is the first podcast of the week, people. And so, as you know, and as you widely expect, we're going to do our heroes and villains of the last few days in football. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to let you go first with your hero. Um, before I then uh, condemn someone uh, to being the villain. I think from a sporting perspective, you, your candidate for hero this week would have been Cavani, but um, I don't think we can quite give him hero of the week, given um, 
some of the controversy around what happened post-match and his, his celebrations of that, that appearance for Manchester United. So let's go for the, the pure candidate, which would be Leo Messi um, and the way in which he celebrated his goal for Barcelona um, by uh, stripping off his Barcelona sh shirt and um, displaying a Newell's shirt in tribute to Diego Maradona. Totally agree with you there. It's very touching and I think he got the tone absolutely spot on um, as Maradona's natural successor as well. It felt um, very, very resonant um, regarding events of recent days. Uh, pretty easy for me in terms of villain because he is a villain. And that <laughs> is Jack Grealish uh, who continues to... Um, stun the world of football with his uh, lightness of touch as in when he's touched he seems very light and goes down uh, but none more so than in the game against West Ham United on Monday night when uh, he received a relatively small shoulder barge uh, in the build up to a Villa move uh, he then took two steps completely in balance and went down holding his knee for those of you who have not saw it, please Google it, YouTube it, whatever you want to do, whichever platform you use, and you'll see it for yourself. It's quite simply embarrassing. Now, Jack Grealish is a player who, with nine games left of last season, coming out of lockdown, was already the most fouled player in the Premier League. I would suggest he's not the most fouled player in the Premier League. He's a player in the Premier League who wins most fouls. And by win... I'm being slightly sarcastic. So um, have a look at it, decide for yourself. And Jack, I know you're listening. It's embarrassing, mate. Just put your neck in and stop it. Takes certainly takes something to take the Villain of the Week award off the VAR who took two and a half minutes um, to make a call that his offside technology isn't capable of making at the end of the game to uh, cancel Ollie Watkins equaliser right. in that match. Well, I think VR's had a, a fair sort of share of villain awards. So <laughs> this is true. We'll, we'll stick with the villain Grealish. Um, I've had a lot of grief uh, on Twitter, as you guys all know, um, about my criticism of Grealish. But as I said, take a look at that one and you'll see why I'm probably quite correct in the way that I've called it. So this has been the first podcast of the week from the transfer window. If you like what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube, turn on all notifications, and you will get to hear us first. Please join the discussion. You know that we love to engage with you guys individually and on our platforms, which are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Individually, Duncan and I are at, at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. We will be with you later in the week. Please need to say, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.